Welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we talk about the week's hottest legal topics. This up, um, this week, we have the Trump trial still going on, the civil fraud trial in New York, and we've had two of the Trump children take the stand and actually testify. That's big news. The other big news we've had this week is, and I'm trying to get the name right, is it Freed Bankman? Nope. Bankman Freed. Bankman Freed. Okay, thank you. Um, so <laughs> Sam. <we've> got <laughs> Sam Bankman Freed. The FTX trial has also been going on, which is amazing because it's the two different trials for fraud uh, by billionaires. So we're going to talk about fraud by billionaires on today's um, session, as well as hitting a little bit of um, the 14th Amendment issue that keeps coming up. We've had this week in the news the trial um slash hearings have started in Colorado, and there's been a full week of testimony regarding whether Trump is barred from being on the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. So we're going to talk about that. It also started in the Supreme Court of Minnesota, a similar um, case in a different state, a little bit different arguments, but the similar similar arguments about the 14th Amendment, about Trump being on the ballot. So those are our biggest updates. We're going to talk a little bit about each of them um, in turn to see how it's going and what our legal take is on it. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer. Tell you do. Tell you do. Exactly. Now, if you're Name Trump or any of these other defendants or parties in any of these cases, I am not their attorneys nor do I want to be anybody's attorney. I am here to just critique. Um, no, wait, you want to be someone's attorney. You just do just not want not to be Trump's attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. There's a bad track record of what happens to Trump's attorney. So count me out. We're just going to critique from the, from the what's the, what's the best word? From the cheap seats? Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. From the cheap seats. It's or our peanut beautiful, gallery. Uh, right. Peanut gallery and cheap seats. We, we could work in either one, um, which means Dean John Vile is also in the cheap seats. Um, he's with us from Middle Tennessee State University. He's a constitutional law scholar, as well as a scholar on the Constitution and its amendments. So this is the legal team you have going for you on the Weekly Wine. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Now, Dr. Vile. A quick wine. We've gotten critiques that we need to shorten up this section. So you know what we're going to be talking about. We're going to do that in just a second. But I do have to say, I know summer is gone. As an homage to summer, the the waning bygone summer, I have chosen to do a mango sangria today from Linganore Wine Cellars. Um, we went Maryland. So I've gotten a couple of wines from Maryland. I'm in Maryland. That's where I live and I work. Um, so we thought maybe we'd do a little bit of um, a taste of Maryland. We've done a Linganore or two before. Love them. So hopefully we will enjoy this last homage to summer. And cheers to you, Dr. Vile. And here we go. Your water? You got your water? Got it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> cheers. Lovely. And cheers to all of you. Grab your favorite glass of wine or whatever you've got, and let's get into this. So, Dr. Vile, as I understand it, through this week, we've been hot on the trail of the civil fraud trial against, I believe it's former President Trump, his eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., his son, Eric Trump, a couple of, I believe... 
accountants, and then the trusts and the organizations. So the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, the Trump Organization, et cetera. And as I understand it, and I want to do a recap, Dr. Vall, I think there have been some findings that were done before this testimony even started. It's right. It's a judge trial. um, And the judge has already decided that fraud occurred. The hearing, as I understand it, is to determine the extent and what the penalties might be. And I, I believe I believe the penalties can go at least up to $250 million, mm. but they could also affect licensure uh, to do business within New York, which is where you know the primary place where the where the Trump organization does its business. So it's it could be fairly consequential. And the judge already had revoked the license. So upon the finding he revoked the business licenses they that they had for New York. But right now, those have been reinstated. See, they've been appeal. stayed, right? That injunction has has been stayed, yes. Okay. But the appeal is separate than this trial. That's right. That's right. That's in another court. Okay. Uh, but but I, I believe this judge may, though, have stayed that judgment until it got to the appellate case. I believe that's what happened. So, so it's hard, though, in hearing all of this trial testimony, even though I understand the background as to what it's for and why, it really is hard to separate it from a trial on the merits. Because it seems when we're hearing Donald Trump Jr. talk, when we're hearing Eric Trump talk and say, I didn't do it, it was them, it really seems like a, well, did they do it or didn't they do it, rather than that's already been decided. So, what do we say overall their testimony is geared toward? It's a great question. I mean, I suppose you could argue that there was guilt, but there wasn't guilt at the very top. That would be difficult because usually the chief executive has has the term chief in there because they're supposed to they're supposed to be supervising those below them. Uh, I mean, again, part of it goes to the amount of the damages. Mm. I think that's the primary thing. Um, I suppose to the extent that the that either Donald Trump or his sons who directed the company while he was mm-hmm. president, to the extent that they were knowing participants and perhaps even provocateurs or the the sort of the minds behind the revaluations, then their culp- their monetary culpability would be greater than had they not been so involved. Yeah, I kind of see it as they're clearly finger pointing. And I will make a, a really quick summary of their, their testimony. I've been on the edge of my seat as an attorney waiting for the Trumps to take the stand. And one of them finally took the stand Wednesday, Donald Trump Jr. And it was really a letdown like, oh, that was it. That's all I had to say. There weren't many fireworks. There weren't those aha moments or Perry Mason moments in the courtroom. Then Eric gets on and takes the stand and there weren't really any big Perry Mason moments. There was one little one, but I've been fairly bored by their testimony. Yes, but we don't know what the implications might be in separate criminal trials. Oh, true. If if it can be shown that perjury occurred, 
then you have a whole different ball of wax. And again, because Trump is involved in so many different litigations right now, there's always a chance that statement. And, and this is why, I mean, they say that Trump is going to be called to testify on Monday. Right. You're the attorney. But he does have the right if he thinks that something he says could be used to incriminate him in a criminal trial to say that. And he Absolutely. has he has invoked, uh, although he's he's pontificated against people who take the Fifth Amendment, he has done it himself on occasion uh, and might be advised to do so. Uh, now, whether he will heed his attorney's advice right. uh, might be another matter. I think that I think Monday will be the far more interesting uh, case. You know, the, the other fascinating development in this case is there are still back and forth arguments over the judge's aid. I saw uh, that. Is Trump's attorneys this time are still making the argument that she is biased and presumably they're doing it to, to for the record's sake. Yeah. Um, but nobody seems really to have introduced any evidence that she's biased other than she's had her picture taken with another politician. Correct. Uh, and they're really skating a pretty fine line here. They've already been fine, you know, 5,000 once and 10,000 uh, a second time. Uh, so that'll be that'll be something fascinating to watch as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I am looking forward to is a, is a bad word because it implies like I'm really happy about it, but I'm not. Um, but legally speaking, and in this arena, I've said it a few times on this program before is we're in such fascinating legal times. It's hard not yeah. to be excited as a lawyer looking in at such a momentous case for, you know, in, in the end, I don't, I don't have any personal interest as to who gets found guilty or liable in the end. But the fact that any of it is occurring is so fascinating. It is truly monumental in history. The fact that the Trump children have taken the stand is that fact in and of itself, I think is more interesting than, than their actual testimony. But the fact that President Trump is going to take the stand on Monday is even more interesting. And I'm and, with and you. I think a lot of people might might question, you know, it, it almost Trump is still sort of touting the line that he's being persecuted. Yes. Uh, he himself has backed off a little bit from individual criticisms other than of the judge, which has been permitted. Right. But he seems to be trying to burn down the whole legal system in his own defense. Um, yeah. I have maybe on this program sometimes likened it to, I think where he's losing credibility is, you know, the child who comes home and says, well, we would have won the game except for that one ruling by the, by, by the referee. Yeah. And they might be right. Occasionally referees get it wrong. But if every time, you know, after every game you come in and say, well, this referee was unfair and, you know, they should have had five innings instead of four. And they only gave me, you know, one point after I kicked it over the field goal. And, I, you know, I think I should have gotten you know, right. eight for that. Uh, you, you begin to lose credibility. And I, I, it's really sort of, to me, the, the saddest thing, and, and this is happening more generally in Washington, mm. anytime a Department of Government goes, you know, tries to seemingly do its job it's like well the irs must be crooked so let's yeah. let's defund the irs and the fbi is against trump so they must have something against him let's defund the the, the fbi 
And the next thing you know, we're not going to have anything other than the will of the person in power. And that's very disturbing, particularly for someone like me who's, you know, so believes so strongly in institutional restraints throughout government. Yeah. And you you are a professor of political science. So I know that you're a dean. I know that you have the expertise in the Constitution and the amending process. But ultimately, your PhD is in political science. And you were the chairman of political science department at MTSU for decades. And you've taught it for so long. You seem to have the insight of, you know, what is at stake in all of this politically, do you see, what are you afraid of politically, not even personally, but as a political scientist in this entire scenario? Well, you know, our country is founded on the rule of law and presidents come and go, Mm. as do members of Congress and even Supreme Court justices. The, The constitution and the legal system and those institutions they, you know, they're guardrails. And the more guardrails you keep bumping into or destroying or demolishing, the less chance you're going to have that government is going to stay on track. And I, I just, I feel very strongly, and, and I, you know, I felt the same way when, if you, I mean, it's been a while, show my age here, but, you know, when Bill Clinton continually was going after Ken Starr, and I understand it. Ken Starr had strayed quite a bit from Whitewater when he got to Monica Lewinsky. Mm. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, either what the evidence he found was correct or it wasn't. And I think we got, you know, something similar here. I don't like people burning, you know, trying to burn down the, the Constitution or burn down American institutions simply because they're going against them. It, you, you know, those who are familiar with the trying to think of the play with Thomas Moore, uh, where he basically talks about, you know, the importance of law. And, you know, you can take this guard down and this guard Mm. down, but before you know it, we're all defenseless. That, I think, is the primary concern here. Hmm. Yeah, I I think to me it's it's almost as if and and you all forgive me for a poor poor analogy but in my own mind um growing up with so many churches and in the church and uh, it was it's almost as if there was a pastor in charge of the church the pastor steps down and the church splits because the the members were dedicated to the pastor not right. the church right so to me it's almost a division of okay we've been a lot of people have been excited by Donald Trump and he seems to offer so much and he does to many people, but it's as, almost as if we've gotten that the GOP is, well, we're pro-Trump or we're not. And if you're not pro-Trump, you're not Republican. Almost like we've got this little division of a church right. is if you don't support Trump, you can't be part of our party. And, and again, it's not, it's not as I tried to show with the Clinton example, it's not mm-hmm. unique to Trump, right? but it's just that he's been involved in so many of these controversies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, he, he almost from the beginning of his administration, you know, it was against the FBI. Right. Uh, that, that used to be, you know, it used to be the Democrats who were always concerned that the FBI was trampling on rights. And it yeah. was always the Republicans who said, no, we need law and order. And it's almost as though we've had a reversal of that. Yeah. 
Well, and it's interesting, though, because we also have had, in speaking of history and Republicans and Democrats, when Lincoln was president, the roles were reversed. As I understand it, and you're the one who knows best, I think he was actually the Democrat Party representative. But at the time, I believe that that was more no. like the current Republican Party, or have I got that no, mixed up? No, Lincoln was the first Republican president okay. to be elected. Okay. Um, but he did, you know, there is, there are questions surrounding Lincoln's assumption of war powers during the Civil War. Mm. If ever there was a time that the nation was in jeopardy and one needed war powers, it was probably during the Civil War. Uh, but he did on occasion suspend the, the writ of habeas corpus, and there were other actions that he took that histor some historians have subsequently questioned. Uh, it turns out Jeff Davis was doing similar things in the South, which the leader of the Confederacy doesn't right doesn't necessarily justify it, but but sort of gives you a feel for the tenor of the times. Hmm. Well, I guess outside of the entire political scheme, going back to to this fraud trial, the the interesting thing to me and what's been published in the media most is that both children have said it's not us. We, yeah, we had, you know, in charge of some things, but we relied on the accountants. It's them. Right. Very big finger pointing of, it's not us, it's them. They were the accountants. They were the experts. We just signed off on what they gave us. What do you think of that testimony? Well, the accountants are saying, we were told this is the ultimate valuation that we get, and we were told to figure out how to get there. We were told to reverse engineering. So we have you down for three three billion. He says he's worth five billion. Well, we got to figure out where we're going, you know, where we're going to make the additions. So I don't know. In a in terms of credibility, I suppose both have some to lose. But mm. ultimately, again, if you're going to be the chief executive, you're going to be running a business. You know, you don't necessarily need to know how to cook books or not to cook books as you do, you're responsible for setting sort of what is the attitude people are going to take in this business toward regulations and toward laws. Are we going to, we're going to try to skirt them as much as we can. We're we going to try to go by the letter or, you know, somewhere in between. Right. And what they're saying is we were told come up with this valuation and these are the properties that we had and this is how we did it. So both sides are sort of point, but, but again, that e even, even if the accountants are, are somewhat responsible here, they're acting presumably under, I mean, they have to act as fiduciaries, right? They have Correct. to act in good faith of what they think their, their leader wants them to do. So I don't think it was a particularly good week for, for the Trumps. And, you know, we, I think you may have mentioned in the introduction What's fascinating about this case is there's another case that went much quicker on the on the West Coast. Uh, Sam uh, Blackman Freed, Bankman, uh, this sort of wonderkin uh, uh, who uh, was involved in cryptocurrency and apparently at one time was worth what twenty six billion dollars, yeah, at, at least on paper, and subsequently it appears as well he was convicted. Yes, and he was just his convicted. conviction rested. He basically said, 
you know, I'm a financial wizard. I really didn't even know about cryptocurrency. That was just my way of making money. And they and, and the response basically was, well, but there are rules that say when investors give you money in pot A, you can't move it over to pot B, which is for your personal uh, use. You know, you can give yourself a salary and that sort of thing. But there and you and you can't tell investors that you are following general accounting rules and when then you're do not. something different. Now, you know, it could go it could go on appeal, but I mean, right now he's facing up to 110 years in jail. Right. And I mean, there's a certain what's fascinating about the two cases is, uh, you know, there's a frequent argument against the American legal system, which in many cases, and maybe in criminal law, even more than civil law, that money, money matters. Hmm. And the, you, you know, how many, well, We've had some we've had some prominent cases where people have been legally convicted, even with great counsel. Right. But how many cases, you know, have we had where somebody we think really is guilty got off because they had the best lawyers in the land? And, you know, white collar crime generally is, you know, it's not considered to be as serious maybe as robbing a bank. But frankly, aside from the fact you probably didn't shoot somebody while you were doing it. Right. You know, if if somebody invested their retirement in cryptocurrency and the market falls out because the head of the cryptocurrency market is is dealing fraudulently, that's as serious as robbing a bank. I mean, these are these are real life. I wish I could remember the name, but some years back there was this big Ponzi scheme in yes. New York, and it, remember it was very similar. You know, people invested their life savings in Lost this everything. And, you know, so it does. I mean, there's there's a certain the, those who who question the legal system. I, this gives me a little bit of cause for for optimism that even you know the the, the what is it the bigger they are the harder they fall. Even the wealthiest These among are, us, you know, to go from twenty six billion dollars to being facing maybe one hundred and ten years in jail. Uh, that's a pretty big fall. This is these are the elements of Greek tragedy. And you know, I think it's possible that Donald Trump is on is on a similar uh, trajectory here. Well, uh, even Martha Stewart got caught. I mean, well, she was right. insider that's right. trading. That's right. Another she, white collar fraudulent scheme. Right. So you know, those those who say the system is is rigged against them, it's not always true. I mean, there, there are there are cases where high high and mighty get get their kind of comeuppance as well as as a local bank robber or uh, thrift store owner or whatever. Yeah, I think for the children, I think the goal has been, based on what I'm seeing in the testimony, is to minimize their own input, their own responsibility and culpability, where they can say, okay, everybody that we've been found liable, the defense as a whole has been found liable, but maybe I'll only get a $100,000 fine. The rest, you have to distribute it, right? You have to distribute it. As a percentage among the defendants, what is each percentage of fault? I'm not of sure blame? about that. You, you know the law better than I do, but it may be, it may be that it, if it's against a corporation, that it affects all of them. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Sh I, I don't know how. I mean, I don't think they're specifically on trial, are they? They are. They are both defendants. 
Ivanka okay. Trump was taken okay. out as right. a defendant, Be- but they are the both statute of limitations, right? Correct. And, and and I think there is speculation that she she might be the one most likely to point the finger back at at Trump because mm-hmm. they the the boys were operating, the sons were operating when he was in the presidency. Correct. Whereas she would have been working prior to that time, so she might have more intimate knowledge of what was happening when he was actually in control. Yeah, it, they had every I mean, reason this is to a say sad, no. You know, this is a sad thing to think of having to call children to testify against their parents. Yes. Um, I mean, that, that I, I have some sympathy there. Now, that being said, the two boys so far... Their argument has already been rejected by the judge. Correct. Particularly their public argument, which is, you know, these these companies that loaned us money, they still made hundreds of millions of dollars. What are people complaining about? Well, um, they're complaining because they probably should have gotten more because they were, if if the accusations are correct. They were giving loans based on a credit rating of, you know, 750 mm-hmm. when the real credit rating was 450 or whatever the equivalence would be if you were doing, you know, an individual. I think I, the the biggest point I want to raise on this is I think their testimony, I, I think, first of all, it's two parts. First, they think they're helping themselves. I think they believe right. that they are minimizing their own guilt, their own liability right. in this. But I think it is going to completely backfire on them and their father when he testifies on Monday. Because well, again, I expect him to take the fifth and to for take it some frequently. of it. Well, you expect him to. I don't think he will. I think he's going to okay. take the stand and talk because I think he wants to. He's making public statements of, but those are the values of my places. His public statements that he can be questioned on, even if he takes the fifth, he, they can't ask him right. questions, didn't right. you say this? He can't take the fifth as to whether he said a statement in public or not. So they can still enter his state, his public statements where he says, but that is the value of my company. That is the value of my home. That is the value of Trump Tower. That is the value of Mar-a-Lago, where he continues to make these statements that are contrary to what the sons are saying. They're saying, uh, okay, we're not disagreeing that these are fraudulent, but we didn't have anything to do with them. I didn't know about them. I well, didn't and, have a and hand there is, in them. You know, to, to be sure, there's going to be some subjectivity in these measures. It's it's not like measuring money in a bank account. Uh, you know, my own house, I, I could imagine being off, you know, X number of thousands of dollars, just depending on you know, whether it's July or September or, of course, uh, you know, what the house recently sold next to me was or, you know, new street going out in front or any number of things. So, you know, to to maintain credibility, the court, the, the judge does need to understand, and I think he does. Oh, yes. That this is an inexact science. But that doesn't mean that you can just make up numbers from whole cloth either. Correct. There has to be some some you know you're 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 signing. My understanding, when you sign these papers to a bank, it's almost the equivalent of uh, well, they're they're often. I mean, it's the equivalent of an affidavit almost. It isn't is. It? 
It, yeah. it absolutely is. So, it, I mean, it's something, you know, to the best of your knowledge, this is what you believe this to be. Correct. And you can't just pull numbers out, particularly, you know, in order to get to the Forbes 100 richest people in the world. Right. And what what the judge even said, he addressed that argument, saying um, in his own original summary judgment that valuation is objective, that there are market values that are done by basic accounting measures that have rules and regulations as this is how you prove it. And he says, good faith, quote, good faith measurements could vary by as much as 10 to 20%, which is what you're saying. But then he adds not 200%. So what he's saying is the most obvious example, if it turns out to be true, is the example of claiming at one point that you have a penthouse that's 10,000 square feet and another saying it's 30,000 square feet. Right. They, or, yeah. 10,000 versus it's actually a little over 10,000, but he's been arguing all these years. It's over. It's 30,000 square feet. Right. I mean, that that's a fairly objective one would think, you know, get out the measuring tape and you could probably right. verify or not. And I think that's where Eric Trump is going to get in trouble because he is the my understanding of his title has been that he's the executive vice president in charge of the real property, the real estate that um, is involved with the Trump organization and with his father, including the golf courses and Mar-a-Lago, the homes that he has. So I think that's where he gets in trouble with all these years that he's been the one in charge of this real estate empire. And if you don't know what the real estate empire is worth, you don't want to know what the real estate empire is worth because the accountants handle that. That doesn't make any sense. If you're in charge of a real estate empire, which is apparently what this, this executive vice presidency is for him, then you should know the valuation. You would want to know the valuation. So the question is, Every time he said, I don't know, that's not my job, that's for the accountants, well, then that's not real. It, nobody should be, as the executive vice president in charge of all of those companies, you don't get oh, of into course, real his estate argument and not is know that the value. Just concrete. That's his argument, um, which, again, is not w- would be credible three or four rungs below uh, but, but not probably not terribly credible at, at at his level. Yeah, I mean, there's a ruling family, right? There's a ruling yeah. family in this organization, and it's Donald Trump. And the and empire his that way is, as I understand it, is not that big. I mean, financially, we're discussing how big it is, but in terms of the number of employees, it's it's fairly top heavy with Trump with Trumps. They're not a, they're not a whole lot of layers and subsidiaries and, and that sort of thing. I agree. So it's, it's a little deceptive to say, well, you know, I have all these underlings. Yeah, you have some accountants. You, you have a financial manager or two, but, you, but you, it's not, as I understand it, some mega conglomerate that, you know, circles the world or anything like that. Yeah. So it's maybe not that many employees, but allegedly is extremely well valued to the Forbes billionaire list. And he's listed, Eric Trump is listed as the daily control of the family business, acting as de facto chief executive, especially when Trump took office. And Donald Jr. was listed as a trustee of the entity. And as a trustee, there are certain extra duties that you have. 
um, as a financial trustee, as an attorney, I'm a trustee. I'm a fiduciary. I have certain obligations that are put on me by law that I normally wouldn't have as just a regular person. And as the trustee of a company, you have the duty to the company that you're overseeing to the trust, to the revocable trust, to make sure that it has a fair accounting. And right. if there's anything that might be wrong, how many years did this go on and they couldn't have thought, well, maybe that's wrong? It just is hard to believe. It is. So we're, we'll see what Donald Trump says on Monday, but my guess is he's going to, by accident, thinking that he's helping the case, throw his sons under the bus by saying, no, it is valued that way. And continue with his defense of, but the valuations are true, rather than their defense of, well, we don't know if they're true or not, but it's the accountants who made them wrong. Um, so I think, that's where we're gonna, yeah, I think that's where we're going to get, they're going to contradict each other, but we'll see. And you talked about the, the Bankman Freed case, so we're going to see what happens with him. But I do want to touch before we end touch back on the 14th Amendment issue because we okay. did start the trial this week in Colorado on the question of whether Section 3 of Amendment 14 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, whether it bars Trump from holding office or even being on the ballot. And the ultimate arguments, um, Dr. Vile, I'm going to let you describe the ultimate arguments. We've talked about this quite a bit on our show, and I mm -hmm. encourage you all to go back to our former arguments and our, our discussions on the Legal Weekly Wine about those. We'll put them at the end of this, too. But I think that they're missing something in the Colorado trial and from what I understand is the Minnesota argument in the Supreme Court. I think they're overlooking one key factor. But um, if you can give us a quick summary, if there can be a quick summary of what's happening with sure. this amendment. Well, start back at the beginning. So 14th Amendment is one of three amendments that was adopted at the end of the Civil War. Uh, 13th Amendment, prohibited involuntary servitude that was adopted in 1865. Many Southern states subsequently adopted what were known as black codes, which effectively restricted transit working arrangements and whatever for African-Americans. And so the 14th amendment was adopted it overturned the Dred Scott decision, which had decided mm -hmm. that African-Americans could not be citizens and decided that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens thereof, went on to protect such citizens with due process, equal, protect, equal protection of the laws, privileges, and immunities of U.S. citizens. All in Amendment 14. Right. That's all mm -hmm. in the first section of the 14th Amendment. Then there are subsequent sections which were designed to, one was not very effective, was designed to prevent states from taking away the right to suffrage to all males over 21. Um, and that was evaded by a number of things. But there was also a provision, there was also a punity provision in there because the civil, you know, many of the people who fought in the Civil War and particularly the leaders, Jeff Davis, for example, had been a U.S. senator. Um, many of you know many of the people on his cabinet had served. In fact, there's a whole there's a whole book on exit speeches that mm. 
Southern senators gave as they left the Union right at the beginning of the Civil War. Wow. And many of these people had, you know, as part of their oath of office, had pledged to uphold the Constitution in the United States. Well, they had subsequently pledged allegiance to a Constitution that was not that of the United States. And this Section 3 was adopted to prevent people who, having made a pledge to support the Constitution, violated that trust from running for office without, and there was a provision, as I recall correctly, if I recall correctly, for Congress to to lift that restriction on individuals. But it was basically to keep, you know, if you had already switched sides once, could we trust you again? Mm -hmm. So you would be ineligible, you know, Robert E. Lee, unless pardoned, could never be eligible to run for president of the United States. Uh, not that he probably would have been elected, but but nonetheless. So the question now is, does this same provision apply? You know, did, did Trump on January the 6th, did he effectively violate his oath by working against the Constitution that he had sworn to uphold? So that's the key question. Now, the, the more fat, the, the more difficult question is who decides. Right. And and then the second part of that is, can you have can you have different decisions in different states? Can Minnesota decide, well, we think it did rise to the level of an insurrection, so we're going to bar him from the ballot in this state. Right. And Colorado say, well, we think it was egregious, but we don't think it rose to that level. So we're going to permit him to have the ballot. And, you know, part of this is it, it's it's always a tension in democracy between, you know, the rule of law is sometimes in conflict with democracy. Right. Uh, the people the people would like to ride somebody out on a rail, but the Constitution says you got to give them due process. Uh, the people sometimes say, in fact, there's a, a, an egregious example in the last day or two of a, a, a prominent broadcaster saying all Arab American, you know, I'm tired of Arab Americans. Oh. They all ought to go home. Uh, you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, Arab Americans, you know, have the same rights as Jewish Americans mm-hmm. or Chinese Americans or Hispanic Americans or African Americans. I mean, if, if, right. if you're a citizen, everybody has, a, has the same rights here. So, you know, one of the arguments that the Trump people are making, and I have some sympathy with it, is the people ultimately are the ones who should decide this. And, you know, it's we talked earlier question. that it, pardon? That it would be a political question and not a legal one. Well, that's one. where I was hit is the, the, the term is a little bit different in this context. But right. What could happen is the Supreme Court. But see, see, this is what I don't know. What happens if the Supreme what happens if Minnesota does one thing, Colorado does another, and maybe Arizona splits the difference? And the Supreme Court says, well, we're not going to decide. We're going to leave it. Now, one thing you could say is we're going to leave it up to Congress. Which is what Congress Minnesota would, is suggesting. Right. We leave it up to Congress to decide. Um, how exactly would they decide that? And, you know, can, can Congress decide <laughs> anything Is it going to be the, the same it's, as the Speaker of the House? Oh. Yeah, it, it's, we, we will see. Yeah. I, so what do you think they left out? What do you think is missing I, from the argument? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. And so we can come back to it. Um, 
I've been following the arguments and I've loved seeing the the experts that they've put on the stand to mm-hmm. say whether this was an insurrection or not. There's been heavy focus on whether Trump's statements and actions rose to the level of an insurrection that would prevent right. him from being on the ballot. But they're missing the second part. I have not seen, at least personally in any newscast, that either the Colorado or Minnesota case has said the second part of or supplied aid and comfort to. That they've been focused solely on insurrection and have not done the secondary argument that, okay, you don't have to have done the insurrection yourself, but you provided aid or comfort to those who have. So in my mind, it's almost a stronger argument. Not that it would win, I don't know, but it's a stronger argument to say, look at all of his public statements where he's saying they're imprisoned for a cause, where he's giving them money, he's giving them support. But it doesn't matter, right? Because if it's... Well, maybe. Afterwards, and I wish I had pulled up the the exact section so we could read it and quote it, Um, but... But I don't think that part of the section mattered as to whether it was happening simultaneously or afterwards. But to me, that's a greater, a stronger argument. Part of the problem here is Trump's situation is is tricky in that he might have had, you know, I I didn't do anything about the insurrection on January the 6th. I might have commented on it (laughs) privately to people, but I didn't have anything to do with it. But I didn't have any obligation, Mm -hmm. or at least not direct obligation. A lot of what the president seems to have done that day is simply sit in his dining room and watch television and watch it unfold without apparently calling in the military, uh, not giving a speech until relatively late in the day after much of the damage had already been done. Mm-hmm. And so part of it comes to in in his response, what is his does his responsibility of executing the law require some affirmative action mm-hmm. when he sees that laws are being violated? Right. And he certainly in other cases, you know, when there have been riots and whatever, he's certainly spoken out and saying we ought to shoot them all or we you know we ought to act more forcefully. Right. But on this day, he was he was strangely silent. Not fully, and, though. And there, there are the, the quotes of him saying, go and fight. Um, well, I, I'm thinking of, I think they occurred before the actual attack. Correct. But during, in other words, th- there was a two to three hour period at least where the attack, where he seemed to be aware from television that these attacks were occurring and did not forcefully or immediately step in to do anything about them. And this is why, you know, Mark Meadows, we talked earlier about, you know, Meadows is one who seems to be his chief uh, chief of staff, seems to be one who has given evidence to the special prosecutor. And he's going to be able to tell us presumably what Trump knew and when he knew it. Right. Uh, and specifically, what did he tell him? What were other people around Trump telling him? And I mean, I think there, there's some evidence that even his his daughter was trying to call him that day. Sure. And say, you know, look, Dad, you got to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So, okay, so and I, I've pulled it up. Trusty phones nowadays. Um, so the the section is so no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, and this is the one they're they're going against right now, the first part of it, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. And that's the piece that these two cases right. are hinging on is what constitutes insurrection or rebellion where I believe the stronger argument is the second part, comma, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Um, where this is the part where what has he been doing for all of the people who have been convicted for the January 6th incidents? Um, yeah. What has he been saying about them, to them, for them, about the day itself? Is he providing financial support? That seems to be the easier argument. But I guess you still have to have a definition of rebellion and insurrection, where even well, if he didn't engage in it, is he supporting someone who did? Right. And, and I haven't been able to follow these cases as much as I would like to. But there's a very arcane but brilliant argument, legal argument, that the president is not an officer of the United States. And I think and the defense again, is using it. Uh, again, you know, you have to trace the use of that office. It seems counterintuitive that you right. would think if anybody were an officer of the United States, it would be the president. It's our figurehead. Uh, but there are some very brilliant lawyers uh, who have argued otherwise. Uh, that uh, And... The other fascinating thing about this case, of course, is to what extent, if you did find in these states that the president was involved, then what do you do about the current Speaker of the House of Representatives, right. who, along with Ed Cruz, a number of other very prominent senators, uh, said they weren't going to certify the election. Right. Is that, you know, is that the same? Is that also giving aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States? Right. Or engaging in the insurrection itself by, by voting I, that way. Yeah. I, I have, I usually don't like to predict. Mm. Uh, and I, and, but this one, I, not only do I not like to, I don't think I can. I just think, I think the issue is going to be, and particularly, what happens if you have states that come to different conclusions? And Which you I would think, think the Supreme to. Court might, I mean, I guess the court could say, they could say it's a political question. They, they could say it's not a state matter that only Congress can decide. But I don't know what would happen if Congress essentially is inert. Right which is not all that unbelievable a scenario. Yeah. And, and they do seem to be different. Minnesota has, from what I'm seeing in the news, Minnesota has been much more wary about taking up the case and and kind of having the questions from the, the justices who are hearing it of, well, is this really our place to decide? 
shouldn't it be Congress or shouldn't it be the Supreme Court or somebody else but us? Why us? So they seem to be pushing it back, at least right now, as far as we don't want this decision at somebody else's. Colorado, at least at this point, it's only one judge. It's a trial court judge to decide what role the law should have and one judge or one state should have in making this decision. But I think it was in Minnesota where one justice, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but look it up, I believe there was indication where one justice was like, look, it's going to be the Supreme Court who decides. Right. And ultimately, I think when you and I first talked about this subject, that was our conclusion as well, is ultimately it, it, it probably will end up in the lap of the Supreme Court. Well, and there is, you know, the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment does indicate that the primary enforcement of the amendment is by Congress. Mm, no, that's that true. Would, Congress shall would, have the power to enforce. Validity to the court saying we're not going to determine it needs to go to Congress, but mm. it, it's hard to believe that Congress would do anything other than give a purely partisan vote on this. It's exactly. just hard to imagine people abstracting themselves enough from the situation to say, you know. They're going to look at winners and losers and my side and your side and red state and blue state. And so it, it's, it, you know, what's fascinating about this for me is this whole argument was kicked off basically by two professors. Right. Who, as far as I know, are not particularly known for litigation. Correct. They're primarily, you know, they do the sort of thing that I do. Uh, read the Constitution and try to teach it to kids. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's sort of fascinating to think that, uh, you know, people in the ivory tower can sometimes reach in and have an influence on what actually happens in the real world. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating topic. And by next week, we're going to have even more interesting news because hopefully, as projected, Donald Trump will take the stand. Maybe Ivanka mm -hmm. Trump will take the stand. Maybe we'll have full rulings, even by the end of today, this Friday, on the Colorado case for the 14th Amendment, on the Minnesota case for the 14th Amendment. I believe there are a couple more out there already. But by next week, the second week of November, we are going to have even more interesting and exciting news. I continue to be amazed at what comes out each week, and we will keep you updated here on The Legal Weekly Wine. So, Dr. Vile, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Everybody, happy, happy hour, and enjoy your weekend. And we will catch you next time on The Legal Weekly Wine.